0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders for Grace Fellowship Church, and we're really glad to be together with Discovery Road Church. Welcome to all of you as well. And happy Valentine's Day. I came to you today with a Valentine's Day message about death. Because if you have ever experienced love, you know that true love is death. You know it. I I was just talking to a uh, young fellow this weekend who is uh, trying to figure out his relationship with a young lady, whether there's going to be a relationship there or not, and what the future holds. And he's all confused and his insides are knotted up. And at the end, I said, sorry, that's just what women do to you. And it feels like death. Don't mistake it for love. And we, we understand this. And, and sometimes our culture even gets this right. That true love really is about death. Uh, that's why one, my favorite example is The movie Frozen uh, just a few years ago, which there's a reason why that was one of the most popular Disney movies ever, because they left the typical Disney message and they went with this message where only true love's kiss can thaw a frozen heart. But the true love's kiss only came when the hero died and it was through the death of the hero that love actually made a difference. And so we see this around us and we see this in our relationships. And we're going to see this this morning in the book of Mark. In Grace Fellowship Church, we have been studying the book of Mark. We typically go section by section right through the whole book. And as we we come into chapter nine this week, it's not a passage that I would have chosen for Valentine's Day if I would have chosen anything. But it's what the Lord had in mind as we were working through the book. But we're going to start in chapter 8, near the end of chapter 8. Mark is one of the Gospels in the New Testament, near the end of the Bible. If you have any trouble finding it, it's after Matthew. We're going to start at chapter 8, uh, in verse 31. What you need to know is that the first half of the book of Mark focused on Jesus' identity as God's authorized king, On that map of the book of Mark, on your outline, you can see part one was the king's credentials. What were Jesus' credentials to serve as God's authorized king? What authorized him to represent God to the people and to rule on God's behalf? What authorized him to proclaim repentance? What authorized him to forgive sins and to restore hope for people? And that part of the book that was talking about Jesus' identity, it climaxed in verse 29 of chapter 8... When the disciple, Peter, finally sees Jesus clearly and he proclaims, you are the Christ, which is an older way of saying you are the chosen one. You are the only one authorized to be our king. Jesus, you have been appointed to the task of kingship by God. You have been inaugurated to that task and we will follow you. So Peter has reached the right conclusion. But now he and the rest of the disciples, they need to learn what that really means. What that means that Jesus is the Christ. What kind of a king is God's king? What does it mean to be the hero in God's world? And what makes this hero, Jesus, so heroic? And the answer that we will see in this passage, is that for people to live, the hero must die. If people are going to live, the hero must always die. And so my main point this morning from our passage is that whoever wants to live with Jesus must first die with him. Whoever wants to live with Jesus must first die with him. So we'll see on your outline that Jesus reverses our values and he'll tell us that the living must die. And he'll explain what that looks like. We'll see that respectability must die. Self-fulfillment must die. Self-reliance must die. And finally, the beloved son must die. Let me pray for us and then we'll begin reading the text. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time to gather together in your name, and to proclaim your Son and your kingdom. Please help us now to understand your word. Help us to die with you that we might live with you. Help us to endure that we may also reign with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 31. This is Jesus talking. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning aside and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Let me stop there for a few moments. In verse 32, we see that Jesus spoke plainly to the disciples. For one of the first times in the book of Mark, he's not using any parables. He's not using metaphors. He's not using any hidden meaning. He is speaking plainly. He wants them to get this. And in verse 31, he's speaking about himself, calling himself the son of man. And he says three things about the son of man. The son of man, first, must suffer and be rejected. Second, the son of man must be killed. Third, the son of man must rise again after three days. These are the things that are coming. He must suffer and be rejected. He must be killed. And he must rise again after three days. And here's the thing. He's speaking very plainly so that we'll get it. Here is the kind of heroism that counts in God's kingdom. This is what it means to be Christ. This is what it means to be God's king. It does not necessarily mean a quick rebellion against Rome. It does not mean freedom and independence for Israel. It doesn't yet mean an end to tyranny, nor even widespread justice. But what it means to be God's king, the hero, it means suffering, rejection, and death, followed by unstoppable resurrection. This point is so important that Mark will repeat it for us, Three times the next few chapters of Mark are structured by three predictions of Jesus's death. This is the first one. And all three predictions follow the same cycle where Jesus predicts his suffering and then the disciples reject any idea of suffering. And then Jesus reverses their values and tells them that they've got it all backwards. Here we see the prediction of suffering in verse thirty one. We see the disciples rejecting that suffering in 32 and 33, and then Jesus reverses their values in 34 to 37. You see this cycle is going to start again in chapter 9, verse 30. That's where he starts the second prediction. And then the third time it'll happen in chapter 10, verse 32. Three times he predicts the suffering. The disciples reject it, and then Jesus reverses their values. Why does this matter of suffering and death matter so much? We see it in verse 33, that Peter rejects the suffering because his mind is set not on the things of God, but on the things of man. The implication is this, that suffering, death, followed by glory, this pattern are, this pattern is the things of God. This is how God works, suffering and death. Followed by glory. This is the path that God blesses, and this is how God promises to restore the world to life and glory. So, friends, if you reject and refuse suffering, you are not set on the things of God, and you are not walking. The path of God. If you expect your life to go great, and if you expect God to bless you and give you what you want all the time, those are the things of man. Those are not the things of God. The pattern of God's kingdom is suffering and death, followed by glory. And in, in the next two cycles in this book we'll see a few reversals of values. In the second one, Jesus is going to say that the first must be last. And in the third one, we'll see that the great must serve. But the first reversal here in this section, it's explained simply that the living must die. Jesus explains this in verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. So the living must die. If you want to live with Christ, you need to die first. If you want to save your life, you have to first lose it. You can't try to save it, or else you'll lose it. What does it look like to lose your life for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the the gospel, the good news? How exactly do the living die with Jesus? It's an important question, so Mark goes on in the next few episodes to illustrate it for us. So we'll see what it looks like. First, we'll see point number two. First thing that it means is that respectability must die. Look at chapter 8, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus's first application of this teaching that the living must die. His first application has to do with issues of shame and power. Verse 38, he says, if you are ashamed of Jesus, or ashamed of his words then jesus will be ashamed of you you see jesus must first go the way of suffering and death but then rest assured he will one day come with power he will come with the full glory of his father the almighty the maker of heaven and earth Jesus will come with his holy angels, and he will judge all men and women for every thought, word, and deed. That means that Jesus sees everything that is hidden. You can't keep anything from him. He reveals every secret. He knows what you do late at night when you're alone with your computer. Jesus will repay every cup of cold water you have extended to someone in hospitality. And in in verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus says even that some of his disciples standing right there, they would see God's kingdom come with power. They would get a taste of that final judgment. And there will soon be evidence for them that what he now says is true. That if I will come, I will judge. But I must die first. And so if you're ashamed of me now, then I will be ashamed of you then. They must not be ashamed. And the application for us is that we must not be ashamed. You see, some people won't ever understand the strength of weakness. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about weakness. Some people won't see that strength. In our day, the notions of creation... And righteousness and sin and judgment, they sound ignorant. Your family might not understand why you've changed if you give your life to following Christ. Your company might not reward you if you refuse to act underhandedly. And we want to sound respectable, but sometimes following Christ just isn't the respectable thing to do. A few weeks ago, in one of the Republican presidential debates, Senator Marco Rubio was asked how he explains the fact that he's been falling behind in the polls when just a few years ago the cover of Time magazine proclaimed him the Republican savior. I said, How do you explain that? And Rubio's answer was remarkable. He said, Let me first say, there is only one savior. And it's not me. It's Jesus Christ who came down to earth and died for our sins. And I was watching this debate with my wife, Erin, and with our boarder, Nate. We were chit-chatting and commenting and enjoying ourselves while kind of watching this debate until that comment hit and a hush fell in a room. And did he really just say that in a presidential debate? And later I was looking it up and I, I saw that that. Actually, the the online public reaction to the debate hit its highest point when Rubio said that. The commenters are going crazy about it with accusations of him pandering to people and trying to use faith to manipulate the voters. And I want you to know I'm not necessarily endorsing Marco Rubio as a candidate, but it's important to see that it's just not not respectable to identify with Christ publicly like that. You see, you can't help identifying with Christ if you want Christ to identify with you on the last day when it counts the most. You can't help it. To live with Christ, your sense of respectability must die. And that hurts. This is hard because we really want to feel happy and fulfilled. And so Mark goes on to tell us that... Feeling happy and fulfilled might also need to die. Point number three, self-fulfillment must die. Chapter 9, continuing from verse 2 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So in this next section, verse 2, we see that Jesus takes his three top guys Up on the top of a mountain in verse 3, he starts to shine like a supernova, like nothing on earth. And in verse 4, Elijah and Moses show up to talk with him. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you should know that Elijah and Moses are historical figures who have both been dead for centuries at this point. They were the two most important prophets. In Israel's history and those two showing up to talk with Jesus it's it's almost as if I were preaching and we were spending time together and all of a sudden while I was preaching to you Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards showed up to validate me you know, key pioneers of the the reformation in verses five and six Peter is so excited and terrified about this that he's not sure what to do but what he does know is that he wants to stay there for a little while. There is something magical here taking place and Peter wants to memorialize it. So he offers to build three tents. And in offering to build three tents, I think he's offering to start a new movement. He's saying, "All right, let's let's leave Let's leave Israel. Let's leave all that religion and those people down there. Let's stay here. This is where it's at. This is great. We've got Jesus. We've got Moses. We've got Elijah. Let's start building stuff so we can camp out here and stay here. I'll make one tent for each of you. Moses had built a tent for God where God's people could meet with him. And Elijah, in his day, he had led a revival ministry among the outcasts of the nation of Israel. He had rejected the establishment. And so Peter sees a need for a similar reboot. Let's start something here. But it's not to be. Because there's more work to be done at the foot of the mountain first. So in verses 7 and 8, the voice from heaven, the voice of God the Father, speaks and he proclaims Jesus as the Son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He speaks for me. And what does he say? That beloved son who speaks for God, what does he say that we ought to listen to? Well, we already heard it in a sense in chapter 8, which is that if you want to follow him, you need to die. You need to follow his pattern of death before suffering and death before resurrection. He says it again here in verses 11 and 13. Well, 11 to 13, while they're on their way down the mountain, he's saying, guys, our job is not to hang out on the mountain and enjoy the glory. Our job right now is to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Verse 12. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And he says, I told you, Elijah, Elijah came. And he, at this point he's referring to John the Baptist, whom Mark already described him like Elijah in chapter one. And he says, Elijah came and they did to him whatever they wanted, whatever they pleased, just as it is written. Remember what happened to John chapter six? One head short, the same must happen to Jesus and must happen to Jesus' followers. The point is this, that Peter, James, and John get a glimpse on the mountaintop of what is to come, and that vision of glory should give them much hope to persevere and to continue. They saw the radiant glory and power of Jesus, the Christ, God's authorized king. And naturally, they want to hang on to this experience and they want more of it. But that's not how real life works. You can't stay on the mountaintop. You must come down and it will hurt. That is the pattern of the Christian life. Those who follow jesus how does this apply for us friends self-fulfillment must die if we are to follow christ part of dying with jesus means dying to our expectations of glory The Christian life is not a life of perfect bliss and contentment. And when we live for an emotional rush or for a sense of self-fulfillment, we are not walking the path of the cross with our Savior. We must listen to the beloved son, the one who said the son of man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen to him. You know what it feels like to die? It feels like death. <laughs> it hurts. When I first got married, I need to connect this to Valentine's Day. So when I first got married to Aaron, my, my, my vision for what marriage was going to be like was something like being swept off my feet and being caught up in the romance and the beauty and the glory and the ecstasy I had this vision at, after we got married that if we spent a night apart from each other, our reunion would be like slow motion running, <laughs> leaping, embracing, and passionate kissing. <laughs> that was my expectation. And the first time we spent a night apart and we got back together, and my wife. She's like, I'm tired. <laughs> and it didn't go the way I expected, and it was hard. It felt like death. Real life is pretty down to earth, and when I got married, part of me died. My, my expectations for self-fulfillment. Now, certainly, there have been moments of passion in our marriage. And if I had... If I could do it over again, I would would do it the same way. I I would marry Aaron. I would get where we are now because where we are is better. But it hurts more than I ever expected it to. But the suffering, the death, is the way to the glory. Now, some of you struggle with broken expectations in your marriage. Maybe you have a feeling that you keep sacrificing. You die more than your spouse does. And bitterness maybe has already taken root for you. Maybe you're here today and you're not married, but you wish you were. And that's part of the death that Jesus has called you to die. Maybe death or divorce of a spouse has left you alone. Or maybe marriage has just delayed longer than you thought it would. And I want you to know, it's okay to be sad about these things, and it's okay to struggle with these things. But we need to know that followers of Christ don't demand personal peace and fulfillment. They don't demand it of others, and they don't demand it of God. Anyone who tells you that Christianity is about self-fulfillment, that person is lying. That person is not telling you the whole truth. Self-fulfillment doesn't line up with the way of the cross. The reason why is because it puts yourself at the center. And Mark will show us next why it's not a good idea to put yourself at the center. So number four, self-reliance must die. Verses 14 through 29. And when they came up to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is a uh, very interesting story. I think the main thing that we should see here is that at the foot of the mountain, Right as they come down after this vision of Jesus' amazing glory, they get down to the foot of the mountain, back down to the real world, and everything is broken. The scribes, the crowds, and the disciples are all arguing. Verse 14, the disciples are not able to do something that Jesus gave them authority to do in 315 and chapter 6 verse 7. Twice, it says, Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons. Now they're not able to do it. We see a loving father who is desperate over the condition of his son. His son who who has had this chronic condition since childhood, verse 21, since childhood. Put yourself there. Picture your child having a convulsion, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth in constant danger with fire and water. Once, we had one of our children hit their head so hard that that their eyes rolled up in their head and and they had a mini seizure. And as a father, I have never felt as helpless as I did in that moment. I heard Erin scream like she had never screamed before, helplessly. And I have never been so scared for my children. Picture your son doing this all the time. This scene is filled with chaos and brokenness. And right in the middle... When Jesus gets word in verse 18 that his disciples were not able to cast out the demon, his response in verse 19 is, "O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Do you see who he's talking about? He's not talking about the sinners out there in the world. He's not talking about Satan and demons. He said that after he got word that his disciples were not able to cast out the demon. Jesus is talking about his own disciples. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How would you feel if you heard your master say that about you? Not to call you a weak generation or even an incompetent generation, but a faithless generation. Generation. And this response of Jesus signals for us what is at stake in this passage. The brokenness and the chaos at the foot of this mountain has to do with a breakdown in faith. A failure to believe that Jesus really is the chosen one, the Christ, the Messiah. A failure to believe that he has come to establish God's kingdom. Jesus has been preaching the need for faith since his very first words in this book. Chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And he has this conversation with the boy's father where he says, if you can, please do something. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible with those who believe. It's verse 23. The point is this, that Jesus is looking for faith. Faith. And faith has nothing to do with how strongly you believe something, because I am sure that the disciples gave it their best efforts, their strongest efforts to cast this demon out. But it has nothing to do with how strongly you believe in something. It has everything to do with who you believe in. And if they had simply remembered that Jesus was the Christ, they could have done it. Because we see this at the end, where they even ask Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? And in verse 29, he says, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You see his implication? What did you not do when you tried to cast out this demon? You didn't pray. What does prayer mean? It means you're asking God for something. So they failed to ask God to cast out this demon. So who were they expecting to cast out the demon? We are the disciples. We are the chosen few. We will do the work. We don't need God this time. We don't need God's Messiah. We will do the work. You see, they tried to do it themselves, and this is not faith. This is self-reliance. These are works of righteousness. Friends, how does this apply for us? Self-reliance must die. True faith will feel like death because faith means having faith in Jesus means that you can't do anything to fix the brokenness. Faith in Jesus means that you can't do anything to make your life better. Faith in Jesus means that you come to the end of your own efforts, and if Jesus doesn't do something, you're dead. You are just toast. Faith in Jesus means that you don't trust in yourself, you don't live for yourself, and you don't rely on your sense of self-worth or self-esteem. Some of you here today are single moms and life is really hard for you. Some of you have had your parents pass away. Some of you have chronic medical conditions. Some of your kids are growing way too fast and getting ready to leave home. Some of you don't know whether to apply for grad school or for a job. Some of you hope that your Ph.D. will pay off after all this work and that you'll actually get a postdoc or a research position or something. But whatever your situation, the point is this. Please get this. To live, you must die. To live, you must die. If you want to live with Christ, you must die with him. To be all that God wants you to be, to everything that you love will die. That includes your sense of respectability, your self-fulfillment, your self-reliance. So what is left? If you're here today and and you're considering Christianity and you wouldn't consider yourself a believer in Christ yet, you might be wondering why on earth anyone would want to follow such a king. A king like Jesus who makes his people die and he leaves them nothing for themselves. Sounds more like sadistic insanity than religion. And moreover, who can live up to this? Who, who can die? Who, who can sat, satisfy such demands? And so, in conclusion, point number five, real quick remember that the beloved Son must die. Remember, this passage began with Jesus' prediction that the Son of Man would suffer and die and rise again. And up on the mountain, the voice of God identified Jesus as that Son, the beloved Son. And in, later in chapter 9 and verse 25, after Jesus commands the demon to come out, it's striking. In verse 26, it says that after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. You see what we have here? We have a picture of a beloved son who died. Mark is very intentional about this. We have a son of a, beloved, of a doting father. The beloved son died, but verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And we've seen all through the Gospel of Mark that Jesus' miracles, they are real historical happenings. This really happened, but when he did it, he chose the miracles he chose in order to teach people something. And here he is reminding them, right in front of them, by healing this boy until he dies and he raises him, Till he's like dead, you have the crying out the corpse, he is dead, he arose. Jesus is saying, I told you this is going to happen to me. Look, 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 you see a picture of it right here. It's going to happen. The beloved son must die. So yes, friends, Jesus promises suffering and death. Yes, Jesus commands his followers to suffer and die with him. But the promise of that mountaintop is a promise of final death. Glory that after death comes unstoppable resurrection. The story of this unnamed son at the foot of the mountain is the story of Jesus, the Son of Man, who likewise will die and rise again. So, yes, there must be death, the living must die. But just as the death is certain, so also the resurrection is certain. And the promise is that Jesus, the true son, will die. And in his death, he will rise again the third day and his life will bring life to many. So Jesus reverses our values. Whoever wants to live with Jesus must first die with him. This means that respectability must die. Self-fulfillment must die. Self-reliance must die. But we we can't ever do those things well enough to win God's pleasure. And so our faith lies not in our ability to die, but our faith lies in the fact that the beloved Son must die. And He has died once for all. We have no hope but Him. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank you for sending Jesus, the beloved Son, To die for us so that we might have life with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe. Help us to turn aside from the things we trust in, especially ourselves. And help us to walk this way of the cross to which you have called us. And Lord, we know that death is in our future. We know that we must die daily. But Lord, we we are trusting that you will be faithful to your promise to resurrect us to new life with Christ. Help us to hold fast this hope firmly until the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.